With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. But literally when I showed up, I was like, holy cow, like I have never done any of these jobs. I like don't know anything. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome. I'm so excited you're here today. I cannot be more delighted with the guests that we're able to to bring to you. Jane Miller is not just a very accomplished business leader, but she's also an incredible human being. And the reason that I know that is that Jane was also a mentor for me early in my leadership career. And so I am just so thrilled that we're able to have her today and, and share a few things uh, that I know will be helpful to you. So a little bit about Jane. Jane was, uh, is still, has 30 plus years of executive experience in the food industry. She started many years ago with PepsiCo, worked up to be president of Frito-Lay uh, division there, Central Frito-Lay. Is that right, Jane? Yeah, it is. Fortune 500 companies, the founder of JaneKnows.com, which is a career advice website geared towards young leaders. So certainly a few of you listening today, you're going to want to check out JaneKnows.com. She's also the author of Sleep Your Way to the Top and Other Myths About Business Success, a sassy business book. And I know that we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later. I can't let that one go without. <laughs> Jane is currently the CEO of Lily's Suites, which you can find. And we're going to hear more about Lily's, but you can go out and check out Lily's as soon as you're done. Maybe just you know, pause the podcast if you're in the car, pull over to, to the local store. You can find some lilies there for you. She's also been CEO of many natural and organic industry uh, businesses, including Rudy's Bakery, Pro-Yo High Protein Ice Cream, Hannah Max Cookie Chips. I know those are familiar names for you. And over the course of her career, uh, she's been a part of the executive team that brought Hostess out of bankruptcy. She worked for Heinz as the chief growth officer, was the president of the UK and Ireland division, ran the Western division of Best Foods Baking. And it, you know, those are just a few of the, the things that Jane has, the wealth of experience that she has to share with you today. So I, on the good human being side of the equation too, Jane has been a mentor to countless uh, young leaders, developing leaders, not just through her website, but also in person. And I certainly am in, uh, pleased that I'm able to count myself among those. So Jane, I'm going to stop there because, you know, we only have so much time to introduce you, but thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks, David. It's kind of overwhelming to kind of hear you give my background. Just, uh, I guess it's uh, 35 years in a nutshell, <laughs> but thank you for the, the compliments. It's uh, been, you know, a really rewarding career and hopefully I have a few tidbits from my career that will help some of your listeners uh, in their journey. I am confident you do. So, well, let's dive into it, Jane. The first question that I ask every guest who comes on the show is, what is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? So, David, it's such a great question. You know, I, I had a little bit of a chance to ponder that. And um, if you don't mind, I kind of have sort of two memories about leadership. One, the earliest one, and then one that is, that is more um, transformative, I think, for where I'm at today. I, you know, I, I think my earliest memory of leadership was when I was a teenager. And um, our situation was that my mother had gotten um, pregnant with me when she was a girl, a teenager herself, and uh, proceeded to marry my dad. And then I have three younger brothers. And, uh, and after I was about 13 and my littlest brother's uh, twins were about three. My dad left us and for his girlfriend. And back in those days, you could be a deadbeat dad. And as I was reflecting on my earliest sort of uh, moments of leadership, it really came at that time when my dad left because my mom, who never went to college, who had never had a job, was really, really overwhelmed with the situation that she was in, that she was by herself with four kids and needed to support them. And I think 
what I did at the time was kind of step up a little bit with her to help her sort of get her mind wrapped around what she needed to do that I could take care of the boys, the little, one, the little ones, while she was out looking for work. And I kind of called that leadership because I sort of felt that I had this kind of calming in crisis. And as I thought about my earliest leadership memories, it seemed like my leadership style or role was like calming during crisis. And so I think um, that was when I was, you know, 13 or 14 years old and I went on to college and I was the chaplain of my sorority, Tri-Delta. And it seemed like my leadership then was so much around dealing with, you know, with personal issues that people were having and trying to get people together to sort of solve these things. And then even early in my career, it seemed like so much of my leadership was this sort of reactive, how do you kind of manage crises? And so that was kind of the first part. I think the thing that really changed my whole leadership approach and going from reactive to more proactive and how you can really guide an organization was after I'd been at Frito-Lay for a number of years, I had started there in marketing and um, was, had an opportunity to go to a sales meeting. And I remember it was like it was yesterday, there was the sales leader of this group, there was like 150 people in the room and his name is John Speaker and it was in St. Louis. And he stood up in front of this group of 150 people and talked about where they were going as a business and what they needed to do to get there. And literally 150 people like stood up and were like cheering John on. And I was in the back going, I want that job. That is what I want. I want to be that person that people follow up a mountain. So, and this was, um, I was probably in my early thirties, I want to say. So I, I would say that, so the earliest are very much about reactive trying to help people through situations. And then I think transforming to being this person that provides a vision and guidance and really helping people, um, uh, you know, achieve goals. That's so interesting. I, I, it occurs to me that even in our mentoring work all those years ago, one of the things that we didn't find out about each other until just now is that we're both the oldest uh, of our siblings and that our earliest leadership memories are of being the oldest of those siblings in a single parent family and helping out in that fashion. And so, you know, you said, if I can call that leadership, and absolutely I would call that leadership. So it's interesting that the calming and, and leading through times of crisis and then figuring out a way to kind of proactively lead and not just, you know, obviously you're still going to lead through crisis and we're right. all in some kind of crisis right now, right? But right. that movement forward, uh, that those are two different styles of leadership and both important, both necessary, but you got the one first and then the other. Yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting because I think the first one was maybe more more of a natural instinct. And the second was more learned, I would say, because, you know, they always ask that question about leadership, you know, are you born with it or do you learn it? And I think I was born with part of it and then learned the other part. <laughs> so I think you can do both. What's fascinating to me, Jane, is that I have met so many leaders who are very good at leading through crisis and they're so good at it that it's all they ever do and that they almost manufacture crisis and let things go to the 11th hour and they never get to the proactive forward thinking style. So kudos to you for figuring that out and making that transition. Well, I think it was, uh, again, um, a little bit more happenstance than anything else, but being kind of in the right place at the right time and seeing somebody like John who was so um, amazing uh, and just really, you know, and he had great business results too, and he was really well respected. So he kind of had this whole package that allowed me to kind of start to think about who I really wanted to be informing it, as opposed to just sort of the happenstance of, of things occurring. Awesome. And you were in the right place at the right time. And you also had eyes to see and were willing to look and, and, and take in what you were observing and then do something with it. That's fantastic. So the name of this show is Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And curious, what does that mean for you when a leader loses their soul? When you've seen that happen, what causes it? 
Well, I actually, again, have kind of two answers to that. The first one is, you know, I spent the first 25 years of my career in big corporations. And I have to say, I worked for a number of people that I don't think ever had a soul, frankly. So, uh, you know, I, mean, I sort of think there's that bucket of people. <laughs> well, we won't talk about them, but sort of like two, there are a lot of people that really don't have a soul. And I think I personally worked for most of them. So, <laughs> but the people that maybe actually lost their soul around the way, I, along the way, I think, I think some of it has to do with not being clear on your priorities and really sort of getting caught up in, and maybe this to the point that you were saying about some leaders that create crises, that, that if you're not clear on your priorities for yourself um, and somebody is making those priorities for you, that you can kind of justify it. Like I need this job or this is what I need to do to get ahead. And it becomes very much not about what's important to me, but I'm part of this organization that is bigger than me and it's requiring me to do things um, that I might not actually even think that I'm losing my soul. I actually sort of feel like I'm becoming part of this organization and you sort of, it's kind of like, over time, maybe little bits of it starts to kind of break off. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, wow, I'm not that person that I thought I was when I started my career. So I don't, I don't actually think that, um, other than the people that don't have a soul, um, I, I don't think it's actually uh, conscious in a lot of ways. I think it's this, you know, this sort of gradual um, experience that you have and you're around people maybe that are more successful and they're making different decisions than you that put, you know, their um, uh, business before maybe their family. And again, I'm not being judgmental by any stretch of the imagination, but I know so much in my early career was that work always came, came first. I mean, I, you know, have a terrible story that I don't, can barely want to recount, but it, it makes me just maybe to bring it to life. Um, where I don't think I ever lost my soul, but I do think that I, on that sort of gradual path, I, I think I, I went the wrong way a couple times. I mean, I can remember really clearly I was a superstar at Frito-Lay and my husband, um, his uh, mother had passed away and he hadn't been close to his mother forever. I mean, they were estranged and he was going to go to her funeral and he asked me if I would come with him. And I was like, no, I have this conference I have to go to for Frito-Lay. And, you know, you weren't that close to your mom anyway. And so he went off to that. And when I think back on that, I mean, like, I haven't told that story in like ever, I don't think, but it just really kind of came to mind about how sometimes you just sort of, it seemed to me it was so important that I had to go to this meeting. And that was like the most important thing where meanwhile, my husband was dealing with something that was so much more important in life. So I don't think it's always really conscious. And I think um, my little story is probably a good example of sometimes how that just happens. Yeah, that, that slow erosion of, uh, of things. I'm curious from your perspective, looking back over your career and, um, and thinking about those moments now, what advice, and this may get to, uh, to your book if we want to go there, but what advice do you have to help people prevent that from happening? If you could go back and talk to yourself at that point in time and say, you know, you might want to reevaluate this and here are some ways practically that you can prevent that kind of erosion from happening and maintain your values and your identity. What would you say? I think it goes, I think it goes back to the priorities that you set for yourself. And I think for me back then, my priority was my job and moving up in the organization and you know i grew up as i as i said you know with a single mom you know we were on food stamps we were very um uh, we didn't have very much and so my very simple goals when i started my career was about not being poor and 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 i think i got so wrapped up in the success that I was having, that it became a bit of a, a drug for me. And it was like the more I worked, um, what I found was the more I worked, the more successful I was. And the more successful I was, the more titles I had and the more titles I had, the more money I had. And then 
all of a sudden one day you look and you, you don't have a relationship with your significant other because you, you made that choice about work. And I think, so that's kind of a long way around. I think that, that if you could actually, as, as a individual, sort of say, what is the most important thing to me? Um, and be really clear on that because I don't think I valued my personal relationship to the extent that I valued my career. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think that was a good choice for me even then. Well, I appreciate the transparency and that vulnerability. Thank you. The, uh, in winning well language, we call the most important thing the MIT. So we say mind the MIT, which is uh, you are reminding us that the MIT is not just about the priority for your team or the strategic priority for the organization, but it's the the set of MITs, the most important things in the totality of life, and that you're very clear about those priorities and about what your values are. And doing the work to get clear about those will help you hold to them over time. But if you haven't done that, it's easy for them to take second chair. Well, I think that's really right, David. And I think, you know, the thing that I wasn't clear about was that you didn't have to work 24 by 7, or you didn't have to give up a vacation or you didn't have to miss a funeral um, that I was not didn't really understand the real dynamics of what a longer term career was about. I was very much in the moment and trying to get kind of to that next step. So I think MIT is a really, a really powerful concept, actually, that I wish I would have had back then. So let's talk about that. I want to dive a little bit deeper because and I've had this conversation with so many leaders and, and you know, as we talk through things it's easy to have the perception that you do have to give up that vacation, that you do have to live out of health and so on in order to get ahead, right? Whatever that means. As you're talking with those leaders who are feeling that way or perceive that that's the reality in their, their company that they are a part of, what perspective would you share with them to help adjust that, that you don't have to do that? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. I think um, I think part of it is kind of evaluating the situation that you're in. You know, again, you can kind of tell stories of my career, and again, some things are a little bit, you know, different uh, different today in terms of company cultures and expectations. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some things that have actually changed over time, and and being a natural and organic for ten years, there's a kind of a different cadence about that and sort of a lot of people who are in this industry are people that are you know we like to hug you know in the old days I don't know if we'll ever hug again but at least <laughs> until about two months ago we were hugging a lot um, so I think you know sort of a little bit understanding the dynamics but I think it does go back to um, understanding one the culture that you're in and really questioning whether you do need to work that much or that you need to be so available all the time. And, you know, and I think just trying to, again, you know, look to others in the organization to see who's been successful. And if that is sort of the mantra that maybe you have to work 24 by seven and maybe it is, you know, it is always work first, but again, trying to understand the culture, not just have your own screen on it, but maybe look at other people in the organization. You know, I think, one of the things that I've seen in my career, especially when you're starting your career, and I don't know if you felt this way at the beginning of your career, you feel like you have to have all the answers and you can't actually ask the questions. And, you know, and it's like, and I, and I laugh at that now because when I think about someone in their 20s, you can't even possibly, like when, or when you and I first met, you can't even possibly have all the answers. So it's kind of like you don't have enough experience to have all the answers. And so I think kind of giving people permission to sort of say, ask some questions about this, like really kind of probe about, you know, what the culture is like, what it takes to be successful. And you may find out that one, you were, had a different uh, perception of it, or two, you might find out that, oh my gosh, that really is what I need to do. And I don't want to do that. And then going back to your MITs, being able to sort of say, okay, I'm in that organization, but maybe there's a better fit for me that's more aligned with those priorities that are mine. Right. Okay. So assess yourself, then take an honest look at the organization, ask the questions, which, you know, you're laughing as you're saying about the questions in our twenties. If anything, the, the older I get, the deeper the questions are, they're harder right. to answer. Right. Right. And owning those. And then if you need to make a change to, you know, take a look at that and then do what you need to do. But 
I, I appreciate that awareness. I would totally agree with you that that is something that I didn't wake up to until mid-career, that there are different ways to be and you have a choice about that. And you may not have a choice within that organization, but you might if you take an honest look at it, but you always have a choice. And so figuring out what that looks like for yourself is important. Well, I think that's right. And, and I do think that, uh, you know, one of my kind of tenets um, is control what you can con control. And there's a lot of things, you know, like the pandemic, you know, what, you know, how we react to that. We can't control what's happening around us, but we can control how we react to that. And I do think trying to understand that when you're in a career, because I've seen so many people and perhaps you have too, they feel like they're just like swept up with things and they don't have any control. I need this job. I don't have an option. I like, this is all, the only thing I can do. And, um, and there, it is true. I mean, there are some people that in this world don't have options. Like my mom didn't have right. options, um, right. but probably most of the people that are listening to your podcast that are you know, reading your book that are following, you know, your leadership tenants, have more options and have a little bit more control. And it's sort of, I think, you know, taking, um, uh, I guess, just sort of taking note of that and trying to understand what you do control versus what you don't control. Yeah, taking ownership for it, right? You know, it's, it's one thing in, in a lot of leadership coaching, you know, I'm sure you've had those experiences too, where people feel like, you know, well, this is the way it is. This is and they're unconsciously getting into a victim mentality and not taking ownership for their own well-being and the reality is you're the only person that can own your own well-being and as value-driven as a company might be it's still the organization it's it's not you so you've still got to to take ownership and responsibility for those things and for the decisions you make you know you can be in a very healthy company in terms of the values and still make unhealthy choices in terms of how you run yourself into the ground and show up and all those sorts of things so absolutely yeah, all comes down to your responsibility Well, let's shift gears and talk about Lilies. Tell us about uh, Lilies and what you're doing there and, and your product, and uh, I'm excited to hear more. So Lilies uh, is uh, the most amazing company that I've ever uh, been involved with. I feel really blessed that it's uh, that, I, that I didn't have this at the beginning of my career, that I'm having it towards the end of my career because it's, uh, I think, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And Lilies is uh, you know, a line of... Um, sweet treats. Uh, so we started with chocolate bars and baking chips and have expanded to chocolate covered nuts and peanut butter cups and uh, you know, kind of uh, caramels and cookies and sort of anything sweet. But our whole premise is that um, it's less than one gram of sugar per serving. And so you can have great tasting products that don't have any sugar. And why it's such a great opportunity for me now I've been doing about two years. Uh, the founder is Cynthia Tice. Uh, she is actually from the Philadelphia area and uh, founded Lily's about eight years ago. And the business was growing really rapidly. She uh, got a partner in a private equity firm about two years ago. I had a relationship with them. They brought me on board as CEO in April of 2018. Um, in the last two years, I've heard about 40 people. Uh, the business is uh, will have um, quintupled this year uh, as we um, in, in two years, a little over two years. So it's kind of amazing. And and what's so great about it is it's kind of a combination of things. It's the products are amazing. Uh, the founder's amazing. Our investors are amazing. I have a dream team that I've um, been able to, uh, you know, kind of handpick every person that's part of it. And then we've got some amazing tailwinds. Uh, of this, it's, it's a big deal, people trying to cut back on sugar. We've done some research around it and eight out of 10 people are trying to cut back on sugar, but it's a really hard thing to do because people are so emotionally connected to sugar and you know you can't actually believe that anything without sugar can taste good. And when you're gonna eat something like that you're emotionally connected to, you want it to taste good. And so Lily's is, is really the first brand that there's been a lot of low sugar you know, candy brands out there, but it's the first brand that is really a bridge that low sugar can taste good. And so we're, um, you know, really enjoying a, a great growth run, uh, which is a combination of the, the trends, the great product and amazing team that's been able to kind of pull all this together. So it's, it's so much fun. I've done so much in my career that's been fixing things and broken things. Like I've never been you know, on like this, this runaway train kind of thing. And it's, you know, I recommend it highly. 
<laughs> it's a lot more fun. <laughs> Fantastic. So I have to ask, like you're going away for the weekend and a car road trip or something, and you can only take one Lily's product with you. And I know you're the CEO, you can have all of them, but if you only got one, if you had to choose, and I know it's like choosing from all of your favorite babies, but which is your favorite? What would you take with you? Okay, so, and you actually live someplace where you can get this product. We just came out with a chocolate chip cookie. And it's in Costco's in Maryland, so, and in Virginia. And right now that's the only place in the whole country. And I am so excited about it because um, I've never been a big candy person, but I'm a big snacker. And we have it, you know, so these are super crispy, uh, less than one gram of sugar per serving. Three cookies is uh, 100 calories. And so it's just like this great treat. So I, without, I love all of our products. And like I said, I could have all of them, but cookies is uh, my, my number one favorite thing. Oh, fantastic. Well, my number one to try was the peanut butter cup, but now I might have to, I might have to elevate the cookies. <laughs> yeah, our peanut butter cups are really, really good. Um, we just actually... Uh, introduced a new and improved. We just, the, we got them out to market pretty quickly and we just didn't have that super creamy uh, center and now we do. Uh, and so those are actually going into BJ's uh, in uh, this week. So if you have a BJ's near you, you can get our super creamy uh, peanut butter cups. Fantastic. All right. Well, there you go. So now you've got recommendations directly from the source and if you happen to be in the, the Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, get that mask on and go get some chocolate chip cookies from Costco and everybody else. Uh, where can they find Lily's products? And I know it's, it distribution varies and de de depends on the product, but where can people go? So we have a really strong national footprint now. So we're, we're in Whole Foods everywhere. Um, we're in all the Kroger stores. We're in Publix. Uh, we're in Meyer. We're in Ahold. We're just going into Hannaford. We're in HEB in Texas. We're in hy V in the Midwest. We're in Safeway Albertson. You're everywhere. Okay. So, so there we're, is uh, we're in Target and we're in Walmart too. So yeah, so pretty much you can, and you can get us online at lilies.com. I mean, our average, ah, you like this. It's been crazy during the past pandemic, our average order is like $85. So like, can you, it's just, it's absolutely crazy. I make an order on Amazon too, but uh, our lilies.com business has been absolutely insane where people are buying a lot. I mean, $85 worth of chocolate is that's a, a lot, lot of, of chocolate, right? You know, if, if you believe the social media memes, that's like half a day's worth for some of these quarantines. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, that's fun. I don't get to, you know, talk about candy and, and sweet things on, uh, on every podcast. So that's, that's exciting. All right. So you, you were talking about the, the breadth of your career, Jane. And so I'm curious for you in that, um, you know, you talked about learning about how you manage yourself and what healthy looks like and so forth. I'm curious what other um, particular moments of leadership learning for you stand out at some point in your career, you know, um, any great moments where it was an aha moment for you as a leader about how to be an effective leader? Gosh, there's, there's a lot, um, but one really comes to mind, which is kind of a build on my story earlier about my kind of transition from the sort of reactive to proactive. And so after I saw John Speaker uh, stand in front of this large group of people, um, I was in marketing at the time and, and, and marketing at Frito-Lay back then was kind of the epicenter. Like, you know, it was sort of, you had all the big marketing budgets and that was sort of, you know, where everybody was, was recruited to come into the company. And once I saw John speak, I was like, I need to go out and be in a field role. I need to do something where I've got a big, large, you know, not a couple of MBAs that are working for me doing strategy, but the people that are driving the route trucks, you know, and that are calling on customers and run a region. And so my first experience was I was uh, an area vice president uh, based in, uh, in Memphis. This will actually eventually lead to the story behind the name of my book. But uh, so I was area vice president in Memphis. And uh, the territory was um, Louisville, Nashville, uh, Memphis, and um, Little Rock, Arkansas. And it was my first non-marketing job. It was very much a, um, uh, you know, a hands-on uh, large group of people I had plants and sort of the whole um, nine yards. And what I learned there was really that I, that to be a great leader, I needed to step back and not feel like I had all the answers. And it was actually 
easy in some ways because I couldn't have all the answers. I had like come from marketing and there was literally no marketing roles that were out. I mean, it was operations, it was finance, it was sales. There was no marketing because that all came from headquarters. And so, you know, the organization trusted in me enough to put me in a leadership role where I could go out and run this organization. But literally when I showed up, I was like, holy cow, like I have never done any of these jobs. I like don't know anything. And I was probably 33, I think at the time, yeah, about 33. And so the biggest leadership learning that I had was to trust people that worked for me who were the functional experts and to be their guide to provide the vision, but to get the best out of them as opposed to being the person that was telling them what to do. And it was transformational. So this was my first field job. And then the year, uh, the first year that I was there, uh, our team won the Herman Lay Award, which was the most prestigious award in the company. And it was for the highest volume growth, um, profit growth and market share growth. And the reason why we got it was I had this most amazing team of people that actually had never had the opportunity to be leaders themselves. The kind of the hierarchical nature of the business back then was that the leader would come in and they would tell everybody what to do and then everybody would go do it. And it wasn't very rewarding for anybody who was very good. And I had this amazing team and all of a sudden I came in and I'm like, okay, we're going to figure this out together. And, you know, it sounds kind of simple to say that now, but it was really like the right rallying call, you know, cry. So I think my big lesson was just that you don't have to always have all the answers. So, you know, that our next book, Courageous Cultures, is about cultivating those kinds of teams where everyone is contributing and you move from safe silence to consistent contribution. I'm curious, any particular skills or practical ways that that you would recommend for leaders to help draw out those? So one, it's not having all the answers yourself and you've got to be asking great questions, clearly, if, as you said, what goes with that to help get that consistent momentum, that flow of contribution from your team? I think it is something as simple as trying to understand people and what their strengths and their weaknesses are themselves, that it is this, you know, I think one of the the craziest things about a leader is that it's not one size fits all under like every circumstance is totally different. So if you have a toolkit, like you always have to be pulling out different tools. And I think, um, I think one of the things that I really learned was as you get to know the individuals and sort of their peculiarities, their strengths, their weaknesses, that all of a sudden you can start to put together a picture of how you can bring out the best in them, you know, what you need to sort of help them with. But it's this really, really personal hands-on thing. I mean, even today, I have the best team of my career. I have four super high-powered people that work for me. But each one of them is so unique and it's so important and they've all got a lot of experience. But my role to make them the best is to really be able to pull out of them what is the best thing that they bring, what is the thing that they can work on, um, and then really, again, try to, to tap into that. So I think that the, the practical tool is this, this really empathy, I think, like to really try to understand the other person and where they're coming from and what their career goals are and what they want to get out of the job too. Um, And this especially works, I think, when you have really good people. When you have people that are not so good, that's kind of a whole nother set of things. But if you have a high performing team um, to bring them to the next level, I think that that empathy is super important. Yeah, it's that leaders are, effective leaders are often students of, of human nature and students of people and learning everything you can about people's motivations and what they're bringing to the table. And, you know, because different things do motivate different people, right? Absolutely. You know, David, it's so interesting because, you know, I would say, you know, I've been in business for 35 years. I've been a president or CEO or some leadership major um, leadership position for 25 years. And I just continue to learn. I mean, I'm just like in one, it's one of those things where I don't know if that's scary to your listeners or not, where it's like, like you don't all of a sudden have the answers all the time. I mean, I just sort of feel like there's this continual 
you know, trying to get better myself and trying to understand nuances about situations and people. And I do think that there is this, um, uh, I think a great leader is also a, um, a perpetual learner and that you are trying to change with the times and not sort of say in 1985, I did this and it worked really well because, you know, like in 1985, like it, it's not the same as today, right? <laughs> very, very different. I just had this conversation with someone the other day who had, had sent in a question and, uh, and it was basically about this is learning a weakness and like, heck no, I would not want to follow a leader who thought they had knew everything there was because that's not the world we live in. You, we're not learning. My goodness. Absolutely. Okay. So you're at a CEO level, have been for president CEO 25 years. Let's take it down to the frontline leadership level. So when you're looking uh, for somebody in uh, to put somebody into a, a frontline leadership type of role, what are the two or three characteristics that are just that you look for, that you encourage in, in leaders as they're, as they're starting out in their leadership journey? Well, you know, I love that question so much. And what I would say is I have a couple things that, that I think are really important, but they're actually, I look for that for in a frontline leader and I look for it in a more seasoned leader, the exact same characteristics. And I have three that are really important to me. Uh, the first one we've talked a little bit about um, already in my journey, which is empathy that I do think that a, a, a young leader needs to be able to look outward. And I do think it's one of the biggest challenges as a young leader because you're so much trying to establish yourself that you're the leader, that you're more concerned about how you come across, how you look, what you have to say, how insightful you are every time you say something, as opposed to kind of having that empathy and really listening to somebody and really sort of saying, okay, I understand where they're coming from. So I think empathy is one. Um, the second one we just talked about too, it's, um, and I think this is so important to a leader, is intellectual curiosity. If you're always trying to learn, then you're trying to solve things. And you know, what we, what we need in business is people that are, are problem solvers, you know, and that are always trying to figure out what's a better way to do something, like not just sort of be this rote, like we'll just kind of doing the same thing over and over because situations are, are changing so much. So, I mean, I love people that ask questions that really have the courage to sort of understand that next you know, level. We just did this culture survey here at Lily's and the, the results were, were really awesome. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of sort of open-ended questions and some of the questions that came out were like, all right, Jane, you say like, we've had this great, like we had a million dollar sales day. Like I always had, whenever we have a million dollar sales day, I always like, so we had a million dollar sales day. And, and, and one of the comments was, I don't have any context for that. Like, I mean, it feels like it's good, but can you tell us more? Like, did you think it was going to be a million dollar day or like versus year ago or versus planning? I don't have any context for that. And what does that I, mean? It, what's that mean? Right. And like, I love that question because I'm just like so excited it's a million dollar day, but I know like everything else is going on that I'm not realizing that there's no context for anyway. So anyway, the, the fact that somebody's asking that question is really great. And the third thing for me, and, and I really, this is, is I think one of the secrets to my success. And I really got this from my mom, which is work ethic. And it's not, and work ethic, not in the sense of 24 by seven, but work ethic in you do whatever it takes. And my mom, had three jobs at any one time because she was making minimum wage and she had four kids to support. So she did whatever it took. And for me, what I love to see in a frontline leader or anybody on my team, it's not working all the time. It's not being available all the time. It's doing whatever it takes to get the job done. And I kind of call that work ethic because I think it's sort of, it's like the fundamental of who you are as a person and how you sort of structure your your um, approach. So I think it's, you know, um, intellectual curiosity, empathy, and work ethic are just those three things are, I think, um, the most important thing for me, whether it's a person starting their career or someone who works for me now who's got a lot of experience. Oh, those are a powerful three characteristics. That's worth uh, rewinding. Stop, rewind, and listen to those again. <laughs> got intellectual curiosity, empathy, and what was the third one? Work ethic work ethic and the defined as doing what it takes, doing whatever it takes to get the job done. Right. And I love that distinction. It's not about 24 by seven. It's not about killing yourself or abandoning all the other values we talked about earlier. It's about 
smartly, I think, and that's partly where the intellectual curiosity comes in, is figuring out how to get the things done that have to happen. Yeah, and, and I think a related thing, David, to that is it's about bringing your A game. You know, that like into everything that you do, that you're really present and that you're there and that you're doing the best that you can possibly do. And all of us on a spectrum, some people can do a lot and some people can't do as much. But if you're showing up with your A game, wherever you're at on that spectrum, I, that's the kind of person that I really admire. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So some, some values, some uh, characteristics to cultivate in yourself as you're looking to develop your own leadership. So let's go in. You, you teased this a moment ago about the title of your book and uh, where that came from. So talk to us a little bit about uh, sleep your way to the top and other leadership myths. We've got to talk about that. What prompted you to write that book and you know, certainly where the title came from? So it's, it's been interesting. Um, so the book was published about six years ago. I will start with that. And, and it actually had a very polarizing effect where a lot of people got the joke, like sleep your way to the top and other myths about business success. That's funny, right? And the book is right. a funny book and is a funny book. And then you got a lot of other people like, oh my God, really? Like here is a senior woman that's saying that you should sleep your way to the top, you know? And then, um, and believe me, there were a lot of people that had that reaction. And then I think, um, you know, two and a half years ago with the Me Too movement um, really started uh, to take hold. I was really sensitive about the book title and really actually stopped kind of speaking a lot about it. I mean, I do a lot of, you know, sort of informal speeches, uh, not professionally like you and Karen do, but in more, a little bit more informally. And I actually stopped mentioning the book because I sort of felt that it, it felt almost insensitive in some ways, um, you know, given some of the time. But if you have a chance to read it, it is, it's a fun business book and it's about stories from my career and, and where, the, where the headline came from was uh, something that happened to me uh, when I went from marketing to that area vice president job based in Memphis that I mentioned to you as my first kind of big leadership role. And there'd never been a woman from marketing that had gone into one of these roles. And so, you know, and these were very coveted roles in the sales organization. And when I put my name into the hat and I got the job, the, uh, the rumor went, went around that I must have slept with somebody to mm. have gotten that job. Mm. And it struck me at the time that I, I, you know, I've, for whatever reason, have been a fairly confident woman from my career. And being a very confident woman who felt, even though I had never been in a role like that, that I could do it and excel, which I did, um, it shook me to the core that somebody would actually think that I would get a job by sleeping my way to the top. And it just stayed in the back of my mind for many, many years as just kind of a concept because it, it shook me so much. And I thought, if here I am a pretty confident woman, if I could have something stupid like that, almost feel like it was gonna derail me, how many other women um, and men in, you know, in sort of, you know, kind of like circumstances, get derailed um, and lose their confidence. And so sort of kept that in the back of my mind. And then over the course of years, you mentioned I do a lot of mentoring. Um, what I found was I was having the same discussions that it wasn't about a particular job, like the technical aspects, it was about the interpersonal aspects of the job and the politics and mean people and bad bosses and all that. And so when I started to put all my thoughts together, what I thought was, you know, I love to mentor individually, but the idea to be able to scale some of this because the issues are the same um, was really um, was really kind of top of mind. So about eight years ago, uh, uh, I came up with the concept um, of pulling together all these myths and sort of like sleeping your like you can sleep your way to the top. And so the book is structured just around a whole bunch of myths, and uh, and then I try to debunk them. And then, you know, kind of like in our podcast here, very honest about my career with the idea being if you can identify some of these issues and sort of deal with it and understand your priorities, you can kind of put more of a plan together. So my book actually is kind of a workbook because I'll kind of talk about a myth. I'll kind of dispel that myth and then I'll have um, some questions for the readers to sort of ask themselves. It's called mirror mirror at the end of each um, chapter to sort of help kind of work through your own kind of personal game plan. So, so it was, from that experience that uh, the title came and then from the concept about confidence and how you can control that as much as possible in what seems like uncontrollable circumstances. As you 
combination of thinking about some of the myths that you dispel in the book and then the extensive mentoring that you have done for so many earlier mid-career leaders, are there one or two persistent myths or that we haven't talked about or behaviors perhaps that you see that, boy, you know, if, if you had to pick one or two that just, you know, 90% of the folks listening today could probably benefit from, what might those be? You know, I think, David, the one that really comes to mind to me is um, a myth that would be that you can't fail, that failure is a bad thing. And I think that that is, is probably um, one of the toughest things to sort of understand as a young leader that actually, if I look back on my career, and I think what's interesting when you write a book, and I'm sure you've gone through the same experience, is when you start to recount everything, you kind of like, oh my God, I've had the most successful career, but I've actually had like an unbelievable number of failures <laughs> along the way. <laughs> like it's not, because it isn't, you know, it isn't all like, you know, sort of, I think Sheryl Sandberg says this in her book, you know, it's not, you're not like going up a ladder, it's more like a jungle gym kind of a thing. And, and I, uh, I would have to say, that sort of getting over that fear that, that you're not gonna always be right um, and that you're gonna make some calls that aren't good. I mean, right now with our company, we're growing very fast and we have a really young team that are working um, um, in our organization that, you know, that I think you know, probably the, the average age is maybe like 30. You know, to, you know, maybe the average age is like 30. So we've got 22-year-olds and then, you know, I'm kind of at the way end of the spectrum, but everybody else is, you know, kind of, you know, in their 30s for the most part. And, and I like to, you know, I came up with this in the last two years, but I, I actually believe it was something that I've had for my whole career. I just was never able to articulate it. And this is, you know, tied to this fear of failure, which is we make the best decisions we can with the information that we have at the time. And it's kind of a powerful concept if you sort of say, we're making the best decision we can. And we may find, and the pandemic's the best example about that, of how things have changed so rapidly. And to not be worried that you made a bad decision or you didn't make the right decision, just kind of think about that you made the best decision that you could. And then how do you kind of learn from that? So to me, you know, this idea that people don't fail. And I think part of what's so hard is that you don't really read about failure that much. You read about, oh, this company like got sold for this, or this person did this successful thing, or this person got promoted for that. Cause you don't really read about failure too much. Um, and cause people are scared of it. And it, you don't, if you know what, what you want to talk about is the stuff you did good, not the stuff that you did bad and, um, or not quite right. So I, I think to me, that's, the biggest myth is that you can't that you can't fail, and if you can kind of get by that and sort of say, okay, every every failure helps to create what you're going to do next. Now, if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you know, then that might be a problem. But <laughs> I think well, you, you, know. you 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 said several things there. I want to unpack. The first that strikes me is removing the framing of right and wrong. Um, and not that there isn't right and wrong in a general sense, but when you're talking about making a right decision or the wrong decision, that using that framework limits you. And instead, if you can say, okay, am I making the best decision I can make with what I have available to me right now? That acknowledges that, yes, you could always get more information, but there's a lot of diminishing returns and you're going to, you know, and then other things suffer while you're not making that decision. So am I making the best decision I can? with what I have available. And then second is, am I learning from the decision I made? Right. And you just shared an earlier example of that, which I love, which is that the initial peanut butter cups that you shipped, <laughs> they were good, but they weren't everything you wanted them to be, but you did the best you could at that point. And now you have taken it to another level. You know, and it reminds me of uh, Seth Godin, the marketing guru. Yeah. He always talks about ship your art. You, you've done the work, you've created it, you've, whatever that is, as a leader, it's a decision, it may be a product, it may be a project, it might be whatever it is, but ship your art, move forward, make the decision and go and learn and grow and give yourself that freedom. And, and that's a powerful way to build your career, your success and, and a life as a human being. Yeah, that's, that is really powerful. I've not ever heard that before, I love that. Well, that's a, uh, I think that's a good one to wrap up our, our conversation on, Jane. Uh, so you mentioned lilies.com. 
where else can people find you, follow you, and connect with you? So besides Lily's, uh, probably the best place is uh, on LinkedIn, and I'm actually Jane Knows Business, so that's kind of easy to to remember. Uh, JaneKnows.com is my you know personal advice website, so you can find a lot of blogs and videos and kind of miscellaneous uh, information there, and a lot of different stories from my career. And of course, you can go on Amazon and get my book. It's both an audiobook and um, Kindle and paperback. Paperback. I'd actually recommend, although it's my voice for five and a half hours. So if you like to hear me on the podcast, you might like the audiobook. I actually recommend reading it. It's more of a workbook actually than something that you, that you listen to on audiobook. Um, unless you just want to hear my voice for five and a half hours. <laughs> We've got a taste here. So, and you can always do both. And you know, certainly I've done that before, right? Get the audio and go, okay, but I need to do the work. So let me get that and, and do them that way. So I definitely would give a shout out to uh, following Jane on LinkedIn. And if you do, one of the things that I, one of the reasons I would recommend that is LinkedIn gives you, for those that do it like Jane does, you get a powerful look at how a CEO is leading and some of the ways that she is posting, some of the things she's talking about, some of the things that she's doing with her team, um, the way that they celebrate and so on. You can get a, an insight into the practice of some of the things that Jane has shared with you today. So definitely recommend. I've been following Jane on LinkedIn for, gosh, probably five, six years, I think. Uh, and so certainly recommend that. Jane, any final thoughts as you think about this conversation we've had about the people listening who are, you know, primarily they're going to be frontline to, to middle level leaders. We've got some executives as well, but boy, if you had one last piece of wisdom to give everybody, what might that be? Oh, thanks for asking that question, David. I think uh, what I would say is surround yourself with some personal advisors don't try to do everything on your own. And I do think having a network of people that you can go to, to ask questions, to feel safe, to feel like you are not making all of the, the decisions on your own or trying to figure everything out on your own. I, I spent so much of my early career feeling like I had to have all the answers that I couldn't ask anybody. And I think I could have made so many better decisions um, if I would have known that people wanted to help me. And all you can do is, you know, you can ask and the worst thing that someone's going to do is say they don't have time, but you'd be surprised at how many people really want to help young leaders um, and their growth and have them be more successful. Very true. I have found that to be the case in my career as well. And, and sure, there are some out there that don't and you, you know, but don't let them get you down. Keep moving and get on to the next one because there are people out there who will. Exactly. That's great. Jane, Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, the wisdom, and, and taking the opportunity to, to share so much of the, the hard-earned experience that you've got <laughs> and, and being vulnerable and transparent with us. Because as you said earlier, if we don't see those things, we can't learn. So thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David, for the opportunity. Take care. You too. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.